Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. Morning, welcome, good afternoon, good day, whatever time of the world it is, where you live, where you are. Welcome to IRC Book Club, the show where every week two grumpy middle-aged men review a book written by probably another middle-aged man, and in this case, I think I'm quite right. This <sighs> week, Michael and I are covering Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion by Robert B. Chialdini, ph.d. Um, and it says on the back cover, According to contemporary psychology, it says, influence is a joy to read. Kialdini deserves a pat on the back for breaking the mould. And then the back cover just tells us, the classic book on persuasion explains the psychology of why people say yes and how to apply these understandings. Dr. Robert B. Kialdini is the seminal expert in the rapidly expanding field of influence and persuasion. His 35 years of rigorous evidence-based research, along with a three-year program of study on what moves people to change behaviour, has resulted in this highly acclaimed book. So, so far, I mean, I'm sold. I'm banging. Uh, you'll learn read the, the back page. You'll learn the six universal principles, how to use them to become a skilled persuader, and how to defend yourself against them. Perfect. For people in all walks of life, the principles of influence will move you toward profound personal change and act as a driving force for your success. And his, the, the bio of him is he holds dual appointments at Arizona State University. He's the W.P. Carey Distinguished Professor of Marketing and Regents Professor of Psychology and has been named Distinguished Graduate Research Professor. He's also President of Influence at Work, an international training and consulting company based on his groundbreaking body of research on the ethical business applications of the science of influence. So I've been wanting to read this one for a while, Mike, but I'm going to be really dreadfully honest with you. I, I can't. I, I I could easily see us canning this after two shows. Well, I mean, let, let's stick with this show. I have read the first two chapters. You know, we're covering the first two chapters today. Yes, we are. First, whatever it is, fifty-seven pages. Yeah, and I read it. Me too. And I, and I have read it. And what I've put at the start of chapter one. Let's have a look. Is what page is it? Start of chapter one. I always write a summary of the chapter after I've read it. Um, so chapter one, it says, nice chapter, but there's not mu that much to say about it, really. No. I, I, I haven't written many notes, but I've not disliked reading it. I thought... It's enjoyable reading, isn't it? It's like a beach read. I thought it's fair enough. Y you know, I mean, let's talk about So should we start one. with the introduction? You can if you want. You know, I quite like to talk about the introduction of the book. Yeah, so, I mean, I'm not so bothered for them, but go on. What he's talking about um, is he's saying he's going to get into what he refers to as the factors that cause one person to say yes to another person. Now, for us, as salespeople, for all our audience as salespeople, I mean, what get what what is more important? Well, there isn't anything, is there? In your kit bag, what's more important than actually... The factors that cause one person to say yes to another, and which techniques most effectively use these factors to bring about such compliance. Now, it's interesting that you use the word compliance. I underlined that really. He uses it a lot in the first chapter. He uses it a lot in general, actually. Because 
we live in a world where to talk about getting a customer to comply with your wishes is extremely unfashionable at the moment. Fashionable is the word. It's, it's un- yeah. It's unfashionable to talk about manipulation. It's unfashionable to talk about influence, actually. It is, yeah. Um, so we're I, in a I'm, period of customer centricity. I think it's more than that. I think it's more than a period of customer centricity. I think it's a period of faux customer centricity. In, yeah, as, okay. mu- in as much as it's a fashion to talk about being customer centric in a sort of woke Instagram, TikTok, millennial kind of way because it's unfashionable, as it has often been for millennia, to refer to yourself as a salesperson and an influencer and somebody who can alter the outcome of somebody's thinking. And so what's happened is, with no disrespect to a lot of the sales training community, and I'm going to exclude a few of the guys that are in our little world, um, with no disrespect to a lot of those people, there's a trend to write about this sort of sell from the heart, love your customer, da 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 And referring to the customer as having been compliant with your will is just monumentally unfashionable, isn't it? But not necessarily wrong. Yes, well, it's interesting, isn't it, when you read the book? So go on, talk to you about the introduction, because then I'm going to get stuck into the first chapter. Yeah, so he says, for nearly three years, he combined his experimental studies with a decidedly more entertaining programme of systematic immersion in the world of compliance professionals, sales operators, fundraisers, recruiters, advertisers, and others. Um, and he, he, what he's basically saying is the book is a combination of what he refers to as participant observation and actually some quite rigorous scientific study. He does a lot of, he, he, there's a lot of science behind it, isn't there? When you read it, he tests out his hypotheses a lot. Yeah, so he comes up with a hypothesis, then he goes and tests it. Yeah, I mean, you can't knock him for that. And, and tests it rigorously in a scientific way. So yes. chapter one, weapons of influence. I, I like the fact he's used the word weapons of influence. Me too. Now, what you have got to be careful with with this book, I think, is in each of the chapters, he's only really talking about one different subject. Yes. And but he just talks about it a lot. You can tell it's been written a long time ago. This book it's very old fashioned in the way that it's written. And this is a, a, a the most up to date version. Well, I mean, I don't know when it was written, but you'd think the eighties, wouldn't you? I'd have thought. Yeah, and he's got a new book out called Persuasion. Yeah, I mean, I'm not knocking it. It's just it's just written very differently. What you find about these old books that are written in, written in the eighties, and it was the same. What was that uh, Drucker book? They just go round and round and round and round and round to tell you one thing. Yes, I think what, the world of publishing has changed. Yeah, whereas uh, modern books, like well, we just finished Jeb Blount's book, it tells you exactly what's going to happen on the first page of the chapter. Yeah, and I think that's because the world of publishing has changed, and the world of publishing has changed because actually the audience has changed, and now people have the attention span of a gnat. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, it's all about attention you, spans. And therefore, most publishers would look at a book like this and say, "I'm simply cannot publish that." No, I absolutely agree. But his point here is, what he's talking about is expensive is good, and he gives the example of his friend who sold blue Indian jewellery or something and doubled the price, and therefore. Uh, all the tourists that went into her shop just assumed that because it was expensive, it was good. 
Yeah, well, I think it, I think we need to go back a bit, Mike, here, because um, what he the, the central premise of the book is what he calls click were. Yes, and what he means by that is, and I, it, it's funny because I've tried to coach people on this for years, and they look at me like I'm frankly fucking bonkers. Is that we all run little tapes in our brain, and I use the word tape. We all run little. Sequence. Podca- little sequences, little podcasts in our mind. We press play uh, uh, to specific stimuli at specific times. And at that point, we we run an unconscious, very well-grooved pattern to certain things. And those patterns are designed not because we are stupid, but because those patterns are there. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to make sense of the world because we'd be forever processing everything that is around us. There are some things that are automatic, aren't they? Brushing your teeth. Pick up Correct. your toothbrush, run your pattern. Uh, so we live, as human beings, we live on patterns. We're, we are pattern-based creatures and we run our patterns on a consistent basis. And that, that, so he refers often through the first two chapters of the book to this concept of something happening then, click, were. And what he's basically getting in what he's basically getting at here is the concept of understanding the patterns through which people respond. So the the first example he does get to is he gives an example of the pattern around uh, somebody he knew, like you say, Mike, who owned a jewellery shop in a tourist area somewhere. They had a piece of kit in the shop, the kit wasn't selling particularly well as a result of that uh she actually left a sign for a colleague that said i'm going away for a couple of days just flog all of this at half price Mm. and actually the colleague misread it and flogged it all at double price and when she came back it had all sold and what he's actually exemplifying is that the the people that came in the shop the customers came in looked at this blue jewellery, saw the massive markup on it, and thought, well, it must be good because it's expensive. Yeah, I'm, exactly. I mean, I, th- I think what's in... And, and that is the whole chapter, really. Yeah, but he, he's using that not necessarily to say that expensive equals good. He's actually using it to give the example of... Uh, to exemplify how mental shortcuts work. Yes, he is. But, but so to be that, fair, what one of his... If you were to boil down what he's going to say you should do to influence people, that's going to be one of the things he's going to say. Um, well, I don't know. Is there a chapter on expensive equals good? I, I don't thought that's is. what this chapter was about, Rick. But that's no, how the, that... I'm so sorry, Mike, but I think you've missed the point here, mate. The whole okay. point of, yeah, I think the whole point of the chapter is him introducing the concept of mental shortcuts. And he's using that example of the pattern of expensive equals good to educate us, the reader, about a book that is going to be all about mental shortcuts that punters take when you are in front of them. Fair enough. And he, he, so he talks a lot about the several components shared by the weapons of automatic influence. We have already discussed two of them, the nearly mechanical process by which the power within these weapons can be activated and the consequent exploitability of this power by anyone who knows how to trigger them. A third component involves the way that the weapons of automatic influence lend their force to those who use them. Um, I, I didn't like the fact he talks about jujitsu. Why? Uh, it, I don't know. It just sort of annoyed me. 
I don't get the impression he's a man that practices much uh, martial arts. He's just sort of used it as a clue. You know, it's a little bit, it annoys me in the same way that some sort of sales trainers and coaches talk about Johnny Wilkinson. I don't know. I don't know anything about him. Where, where people go on about the, the Rugby Union World Cup, oh, well, you know, you've got to keep an eye on the ball like Johnny Wilkinson. It's just like, oh, shut up. Right, fair enough. So, that, so I didn't like that. Um, and then he introduces the further weapons. Um, and what he's talking about here, the contrast principle, he calls it. What page um, on? I'm on page 13. So he refers to that as the contrast principle. Yeah, yeah. And what I've tried to do is I've tried all the way through reading it yesterday to think, how does this apply to my universe? Okay. So how would we apply that? How would one of our guys apply that? So I wrote, he will almost always pay more for whatever accessories he buys after the suit. So he gives an example here of... Um, you can buy an FM radio in your car. <laughs> That's what he yeah, says. But what he's saying is you sell, you sell the accessories to the car after you've sold the car. Yeah, because the car's really expensive, so the accessories seem cheap. Correct. And you sell the belt and the shoes after you've sold the suit. Yep. Not not the belt and the shoes first. Um, and then I thought, you know, if I was wanting to be a thousand percent manipulative here, would you present an expensive candidate than a cheap one to a customer? Well, he talks about that really in the next chapter, doesn't he? Does he? No, I that's more so. on reciprocation, isn't it? But uh, if, you, I, if you're I, just thinking about price as a expensive heuristic and the whole concept of the contrast principle... How would how would one of our audience apply the contrast principle? I was thinking, for example, if I was working in a VAR environment, would I, for example, set up the mar- add little margin and then make my margin back on my maintenance, for example? Yeah, I guess. I guess I thought that was in the next chapter. Maybe I've got confused those two chapters. And then he talks about FM radios, and then we're on to chapter two. Because I thought two. he covered that in reciprocal concessions on page 36, but we'll come to that. But uh, about our market, I'll tell you the best example of expensive equals good, I think, is the headhunters. I couldn't I, agree more. So I think, I, I think I, so I, many of the clients... Explain that to our audience, Mike. Well, I, I, th- I often see companies use headhunters who charge them a ridiculous amount of money, and then the company hires an appalling salesperson. And I think a lot of companies out there just fall for the tie-stroking, super expensive headhunter without actually looking at what the headhunter does. Well, it's it's. And I think no, that's. Go on, sorry, Mike. You I was going to say I think that's often true in the technology market itself. I'm sure there are some industry, you know, there are some specific product examples where people buy SAP over something else. Oh uh, yeah, whatever absolutely. it must be. I, I couldn't agree more. I think what what actually, if you think about it, the the thing with the executive search companies is the whole brand is set up to look, smell, sound, feel expensive. Mm -hmm. Salesman in an expensive suit, in an expensive office, in an expensive part of the city, charging, and there's almost like you say, you know, you talk to customers and there's almost like a beam of pride as they say, I've engaged a headhunter at 45% of the first year's basic salary. They're very proud. Like, and you're a bit like, what the fuck have you done? 
Why have you done that? <laughs> well, it's amazing, isn't it? Because in Leeds, where we live, there are big recruitment companies who are dealing with US searchers yeah. or CEOs. Those Leeds recruitment companies are charging 35%. And let's get it right. The guys doing the searchers are kids with stupid haircuts and tattoos. I saw one of them yesterday in Hetchel Woods. And it's just crazy. He used to work for us. High as, a kite on, high as a kite on drugs as he walked past me. Just unbelievable. But actually, yeah. what's the client fallen for? The client's fallen for expensive equals good, actually. Well, what's interesting is I think a lot of these American companies that are using the English headhunters and going for this English executive search thing is they're really falling for the whole quintessentially British thing. Yeah, they, th- they, they, they think they're, de- they're dealing with the Earl's son. They think they're buying a Savile Row suit. Yeah. They're just, um, but actually, they're just dealing with some scrope covered in tattoos. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, That's the, the truth. But, they, but they hear the English accent. They hear 40%. They see a website with a picture of the gherkin on it. Exactly. And they go, right, hold on a minute. This is serious shit. London-based city headhunter. If from the financial epicenter of the universe, correct, expensive, they must be amazing. And I think that is an amazing um, concept to think about just in general as a salesperson is expensive equals. And, and then to think about, you know, using your example of the VAR. So there's a there's loads of VARs out there, but there's one who are based in sort of West Yorkshire who actually they're the way that they sell they've got a, like a cool name and they go out and they're, they're, they're you know all their salespeople all look really scruffy and never have seen and wore, worn a suit and they talk about price because listen we'll just talk about price straight away what we're we trying to hide whereas actually if you were a business advisor you would say do you realize you can charge 10 percent more margin if you actually get you guys to wear a suit and you get and you employ people that speak correctly and I think that is where the modern uh, selling culture has changed away from this book, actually. Yes, it's almost people don't want to appear expensive. Well, what 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 what, well, what, what people like want to do? Snobbery, isn't it? I think it's more than that, actually. And this will get really off to a tangent. But We're not because it's. I think. I think what the what the. The new, so let's say post-2010, sales leaders, salespeople have really got into his authenticity. That is their watchword. They're talking about being authentic. I bet the life with all this COVID thing and everyone based from home, they're just banging on. Yeah, this is my house. Look, I've sat with my dog. Oh, look, I've got a picture of my kids on the wall, says the man that's got a picture of kids on his wall. But what you're actually seeing is the real me. But actually, that's manufactured authenticity. And what this man is taking us back to is true authenticity, actually. Well, he's talking about about thinking about the brand. Yeah. I, I Thinking this, about the brand and the position. This is the basics of marketing and selling. Thinking about your brand and your market positioning. Absolutely. And actually being able to say, listen, this is a premium brand and therefore we are premium market position. And, you know, we always, we know SAP has always been expensive software more expensive than the competition. And as a result, they've always been a bit more of a premium brand SaaS. Some of these brands are a bit more premium. And what's happened is in the world of software as a service, because A, I can give you the puppy dog sale and I can let you take the software for four months until actually you can't live without it. B, in some software as a service environments, I can pay you 
monthly and if I don't like you, I can can you. Mm. It's therefore not perhaps as important to create that expensive equals good perception or that level of branding. And actually the branding is all about, we love you, we're nice, we're cool. Check us out, we're going to put smileys on our instant messages to you. We've got a slide in the office. And all that garbage. I mean, it's, what's interesting is, on the expensive equals good thing, uh, is, is so I've got a BMW, and mate's got a Kia, sort of SUVs. My BMW isn't actually better than his Kia. No. They're pretty much the same, really. Similar size, both leather, similar options, but which costs more? Yours has got BMW badge on it, though, pricey. Expensive equals good. Chapter yep. two, reciprocation. I thought it was quite a good chapter, actually. Very interesting. So tell Very, us all about it. Well, what, what, he's, what he's talking about is this web of indebtedness. And he uses the Harry Krishna organization as, as one of his examples. Interesting example. Yeah, I didn't know anything about Harry Krishna. I started reading about Harry Krishna's after it. Did and you? He says, what? Yeah, yeah. And he you, said, maybe you, it's just sort of passed you by age-wise because you're a few years younger than me. I don't know. I didn't know anything about it. I remember it. it really well. I remember they used to walk through town with their little like bell things. Ding, ding, ding. So, so what the Hare Krishnas do is they give you a flower just as a gift. Yeah, I know. And then you feel indebted to them. I know. So what they're saying is that... And then all they these... talk you into making a donation. Yes. Well, you know, you but but according to Kialdini's book, and he's right, is, is your sense of indebtedness talks you into making a donation. Yeah. He's saying that you have to reciprocate. It's in human nature. Well, I'll tell you what was interesting, Mike, was not long after we got our dog, Lillian, who uh, it was a rescue dog from Dogs Trust, there was a big stall in Leeds City Centre and uh, of the Dogs Trust. They had a big stall out. And I walked past it and the guy goes, have you got a dog? And I go, yeah. And he goes, oh, I get your dog from her. I went, Dogs Trust. He went, tell me about your dog. And I went, oh, we love her to pieces. We've, it's been one of the best things I've ever done in my whole life. We love her to pieces. Before I knew it, I'd sponsored a dog. But that's the law of reciprocity, isn't it? Yeah, That it is. is you feeling indebted. To Dog's Trust. Because yeah. they've brought so much joy. Let's get it right. We paid 100 quid for our dog. Yeah, know, yeah. We went to Dog's Trust, 100 quid. She came all done up by the vet, all neutered and sorted with like three months of free vet bills, a collar and some food. And we were like, right, okay. But I felt indebted and therefore I reciprocated to the Dogs Trust by sponsoring Jack, who actually is no longer with us. And I now sponsor Stanley, who's there's a picture of him on my wall. I bet he's a rough bugger, isn't he? <laughs> Leeds uh, Dogs Trust. <laughs> your problem is when you're sponsoring dogs at the Dogs Trust, it, that you're sponsoring the dogs that they can't rehouse. Exactly, yeah. And Stanley's been there 10 years. Right. So <laughs> but this, I think this chapter is a good read for a salesperson, actually. It is, because there are so many different thoughts on reciprocity. Um, I, I put here that uh, this gets expanded, but it's a central tenet to make up uh, of some people. Um, I think that the concept of reciprocity is perhaps more prevalent in sub-enterprise level selling. I don't agree. Do you not? I don't. So years ago, I used to deal with Avenard, you know, part of Microsoft and Accenture, whatever. And um, this chapter got me thinking about it. And I remember talking to the guy, and the week before, he'd been to the British Grand Prix. What, uh, 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 on, as a guest of somebody? No, no, no. Avenard had a, whatever, a, yeah. uh, a suite at the British Grand Prix. 
And he t- and it was just crazy, you know. He'd taken twenty five CIOs of the best companies in the world, you know, blah de blah de blah de blah. And I think that whole corporate hospitality thing, I, I think that creates indebtedness. I-, I I think that's what it's about. I think indebtedness underlines a lot of how uh, companies sell and network and how they do it. Actually, I don't think it limits itself to SMB necessarily. I think the Bribery and Corruption Act made that a lot harder. Probably. Yeah. I mean, he makes some really interesting points here. I wrote wow by this bit, where he talks about the experiment with the um, giving giving bottles of Coke to people. Oh, and then buying a raffle ticket. Yeah. And he's saying, the relationship between liking and compliance was completely wiped out in the condition under which subjects had been given a Coke by Joe. But those who owed him a favourite made no difference whether they liked him or not. They felt a sense of obligation to repay him, and they did. Mm. So what they're saying is you can create indebtedness out of people who don't even like you, which is quite interesting. Well, he goes on, actually, to say you can create an indebtedness out of people that you've uh, never spoken to before. Yes. And, you know, then he starts going on about the free sample has got a long and very effective history. Yes. And what he's talking about is the concept of a free sample. You know, even that, when you're walking through Costco and they give you a bit of cheese, he's talking about. Yes, he is. Yeah. Well, that's um, the example. He's talking about supermarkets. Yeah. That's the example he uses. Absolutely. You know, um, and I was trying to think, okay, so how do we do that in our universe? How well, do- it's interesting because on page 34, I've put, this is going to get me thinking about canvassing. How do we create reciprocity? Yeah. You give something away for free. And, and for those of you who haven't read the book, he's basically saying if you give something away, the human characteristic is to want to give something back, to reciprocate. Yeah. And he's saying that we can do that with people that we've never spoken to before. Correct. So Now, do you think about that in the context of canvassing? Because what is a canvas call? A canvas call is, hello, my name is, I want something from you. It's, can, you, can you remember when we worked at Emis? Were you there when we did that marketing campaign? Where and this is in the days before YouTube, where we created demo DVDs and we we had a marketing agency put them in a box with a tea bag and a really nice biscuit. Yeah, yeah, I did see that in a packet. And I think we sent about three hundred. I think we booked about seventy demos. Wow, that's amazing! But the conversion ratio on that campaign was absolutely unbelievable. And that was a, if you think about that, it was a really nice gift, a sweet thing to do. Have a cup of tea, sit down, take a break and watch our DVD. Yeah, really smart. And people took your call and they were, and the ones that took your call were the ones that were obviously somewhere in a cycle of thinking about that procurement and the ones that were always going to actually uh, get a demo. Now, do you think they reciprocated? I think there's a reciprocity in the fact that we'd gone to a lot of trouble to package that up and make it lovely and make it really nice. Yep. Instead of just saying, hello, my name is, I want something from you. Can I come and see you? Can I have, hello, my name is. Can I have your time? You're you're a lawyer whose time is worth £200 an hour. Can I have an hour of it, please, for free? Yeah. Because what we gave them was that little demo DVD that just whetted the appetite with the cup of tea. The biscuits were absolute premium, like shortbreads, like proper ridiculous premium biscuits. Like so the ones you get on the train. Just full on. They were full on biscuits. I know it sounds ridiculous to say a biscuit is full on, but they were full on biscuits. And people got them and they obviously sat and went, well, do you know what? I will make a cup of tea. 
and they've sat and had a cup of tea on us and they've gone, do you know what? When they call, I'll talk to them. Yeah. And what you had created was indebtedness. Yes. And that's what he's getting at here. And I he think is getting at that. It's it's really, um, you know, he talks here about the psychology. Women frequently comment on the uncomfortable sense of obligation they can feel to return the favours of a man who has given them an expensive gift or paid for a costly evening out. Yeah, exactly. Now I think we're we're a little bit more woke nowadays, and uh, long, I'm a long I'm long since past a dating um, touch wood. Um, and um, <laughs> and um, I, I'd like to think the world is a little bit more full of equanimity, but I get his point. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, page 36. Classic. Yeah, you're talking about negotiation then as well. We're talking about what I was talking about in the last chapter, actually, which is reciprocal concessions. Yeah. So his example is Boy Scout pitched up in front of him and said, listen, do you want to buy a ticket from me for a five for $5? He's gone, no, 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 I don't want to buy a ticket. He's gone, all right, well, fair enough. How about a chocolate bar for a dollar? And he went, yeah, okay, I'll buy a chocolate right, bar then. for a dollar. And I think that, it's easy to just throw that away as an example. But if I'm, a salesman, example. if I'm a salesman and I give that some real thought, how do I apply that? Do you want to, yes. buy, do you want to buy a ticket for a $5? No, well, how about this for a dollar? Yeah, brilliant. Because you've created indebtedness. Yeah, from nowhere. It, well, what does he call it? Reciprocal concessions. Yeah. So you've given a concession you've to given which a cons- he therefore has to reciprocate. Because he's indebted to you for your concession. But a couple of minutes, it's just nuts well, when you think about that. N- it is nuts when you think about it. Yeah. So I've walked up to you in the street going, Johnny, do you want to buy this for a fiver? You don't oh, know me. Nah. nah, mate, sorry, not interested. Oh, well, how I about go, this oh. for 50p? And you go, oh, God, well, he's been nice. Yeah, all right, I'll buy it off you. So he's, yeah. He's given me the concession to something I didn't actually originally want, and I've ended up out of indebtedness to making, me. <laughs> a procure, making a procurement. Okay, so let's talk again. How does one of our candidates, one of our customers, apply that? Well, that's the question, isn't it? And it's very specific to their own environment. You would have to think about that very carefully, I think. You know, um, how, uh, what, what, if, I'm a, if I'm a software salesman, how do I create what in reality is a reciprocal concession. I, well, you've got to think about where you are in the sales cycle. So we've got to stick at canvassing now. You're right. No, now, the problem with software is nobody's going to buy it on one call because it's not a chocolate bar in the street so kind you of could, thing. So at the, at the most very base level, hi, do you want to buy some software? No. How about I come and show you it for just 10 minutes? I was thinking that. Or, or to take, you know, for, for, for example, to take uh, your selling to solicitors, as, as the example, I call you, do you want a demo of my software for two hours? No. <sighs> okay, understood. Well, I can help you out with that. How about I send you uh, a YouTube clip that you watch for 10 minutes? Well, how and about ca- a 15-minute web we, demo? And we catch up after it. Yeah. Because I've created indebtedness in you and I've made a concession. Yeah, I'm not so saying it's you, perfect because so we've made that up on, you know, on, on this spot. call. But, but actually, but, your opening gambit would be, hi, I'd like to come and see you and do a half-day workshop at your offices to explain to you how we can help you. I'd like to get but, you to get all the managing partners there. Yeah. Uh, I'll put the lunch on. And the, he's going, oh, I don't want that. Oh, I don't want fuck that. Whoa, off, whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, I'll tell you what. How about that, Jonathan? If you're struggling with that, how about 15-minute web demo, time to suit you, uh, 8 o'clock or 6 o'clock tomorrow? Yeah, okay. Yeah. And that's a reciprocal concession. And yes. you've actually had no intention whatsoever of booking a half-day workshop with the customer. Now, that's what you and I 
talk about that that's manipulative that's manipulation but i think that's selling mike i agree with you i agree i with think you completely. that's the application of psychology to win now some people are going to look at that and they're going to go oh it's manipulative but actually is it we've well, all yes. been, and the point robert cialdini is making is marketers we are manipulated constantly all day by brands think about well Stella Artois, Mike, reassuringly expensive. Is it? Is that the branding? It is, yeah. And I use, as you know, I drink a Stella. You drink the reassuringly expensive lager. Like, and, it is a, and it is a it's quid more than anything else. Well, Moretti. Moretti's Beer the same. P- Peroni's the same. Yeah. But these are these are beers that Italians wouldn't drink. It doesn't cost it doesn't cost a quid more to make you a pint, does it? Literally, a Belgian wouldn't put a fire out. With a can of Stella, exactly. Yeah, they exactly. wouldn't put a fire out with a can of Stella. Well, getting back to your point, you know, it, it, that's how we are being marketed too. So it's therefore, it's you know, people think that there's a rules here, but big business has been manipulating us all using using rules like this since we well, were since our parents were small children. Well, you know, you walk down uh, the hedgerow, you know, in Leeds, there's very often someone giving out free little mini cans of Coke or free little protein <laughs> bars or whatever. And then when you go to the shop, psychologically, you have a piece of indebtedness that goes, yeah, I'm going to buy the can of Coke. Well, look at uh, when we're in, uh, in our building in Pinnacle. How much free swag do we get? Oh, loads. You could it's actually, ridiculous. You could actually not, never buy any lunch. Yeah. You could easily go, theoretically, you could go all week and not buy any snacks. Now, lots of them are garbage, but a lot of that is reciprocity, isn't it? It's all about, we're giving you some samples. At some point, you'll walk in the shop and you'll buy them. And it's twofold. One is, hopefully, the consumer will like the product. But the other is a, a sense of indebtedness. Well I, well, I think that the Joe Punter thinks, oh, it's just because I like the product. I think a lot of these marketing companies that work for coca-cola they're probably quite sophisticated they understand how indebtedness works yeah so they they are manipulating us so chapter two you know as much as you started off saying oh this might not last very long i thought chapter two was a beauty and i'm going to use it i will be trying to use it and i'll be looking for applications of it i think i got annoyed because he went on for six pages about watergate yeah, there's a lot of old politics in it. And, and, and that's a period of history that I've sort of read about, but... Uh, I don't have any interest in... I, I don't have any... And I'm, I mean, I'm really interested in history. I'm just not interested in Watergate. No, um, I Request as acts of succession, how to say no. And he does give a little bit of a, sort, a, a, a treatise on how to say no to these levels of reciprocation, but... Overall, I thought that was a really, really interesting chapter. That that premise itself, where I'm nervous is, I think what we're going to have to do as we go through the book is make sure we're focusing on where would our audience apply that. Yes, I agree with that. Where would you and I apply it? Where would our audience apply it? So it's been an interesting show this morning, and it's been great to speak to you. Um, I don't know if you know, listeners, but it was Christmas at Mike's house over the weekend. Um, 25th of April, yes, we broke the... uh, the lockdown boredom for my wife, kids. Uh, we had Christmas Eve. Uh, the kids always sleep in each of the bedrooms on Christmas Eve, so we did that. Uh, Mrs. Price and I watched Gavin and Stacey Christmas special right. on uh, Christmas Very Eve nice. evening. Uh, Christmas Day, we had Christmas Day lunch. We swapped nice. turkey for chicken, but we did have Christmas stuffing because we always buy loads. Turkey. 
just didn't bother. But I preferred chicken actually. Right. Um, so, but we did all of that stuff. Uh, it was a bit different to normal Christmas because we played outside with water guns in the afternoon. Like Australians. <laughs> yes, like Australians. Right. Uh, but we did then watch uh, a Christmas film and it was great. With Christmas Fantastic. decorations, the, the lounge was decorated with a Christmas so tree. Michael and I are completely holding it together during the lockdown. Uh, if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, make sure you like and share it. And do us a favour. If you're a listener, you know, hey, we've got about 500 regular weekly listeners to this show, yet we only have 50 reviews on iTunes. Therefore, do us a favour, everybody. Make sure that you're leaving us a review on iTunes. The more we get, the better it is for us. Uh, and we will see you next week.